You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Uh, I, uh, I do promise that uh, I won't be as long as I was last week. So at least I'll, I'll do my best. I got permission. So last week was really, it's really Ovi's fault. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, welcome to, uh, to Summit. And uh, my name is Lucas, and uh, I'm one of the other pastors here. And, uh, and as Ovi mentioned, uh, we are starting a new series. It's a, it's a three-part Christmas series. And uh, like Zoeanna mentioned earlier, uh, Advent is traditionally the four Sundays before Christmas. Um, and uh, if you were with us last week, I kind of floated that idea, if you remember. Uh, Advent is really this idea of, of just the Christian community taking time to just celebrate and reflect uh, the coming of Christ, which is what Advent means, coming or appearing. And, uh, and so it is appropriate during this time to, uh, to sometimes talk about the Lord's second coming, right? He didn't just come once, or he did just come once, but he's coming again. And that's kind of what we talked about last week. And that's how James ends his book, is, uh, is basically just ending on this note, on this idea that Christ is coming, the judge is at the door, the Lord is near, so then live like this. And so th- this, uh, that kind of started off this idea of, of Advent. And what we're going to be covering the next three weeks is the idea of Christ's first Advent and, uh, and the great joy that comes out of what he accomplished in his life um, and uh, in his ministry while, uh, during his first Advent. And, uh, and specifically, we have uh, three weeks, and over those three weeks, uh, just like Ovi mentioned, uh, we're talking about uh, a, a savior for every season. And we're specifically going to zero in on this idea of Christ as our prophet, Christ as our priest, and Christ as our king. Now, these, uh, these might sound like obscure titles or offices um, or just, I don't know, maybe, maybe, it, uh, maybe it doesn't connect. And a lot of times uh, that... Uh, it's that perspective that we lose is because we're not as connected to the Old Testament or the prophecies of the Old Testament uh, as, uh, as the Jews would, would have been in the first century. So we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, in the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and the book of Hebrews was written to, you guessed it, Hebrews, right? So, uh, and so this, this idea of, and Hebrews really kind of captures this idea of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And this would have connected uh, very closely with the, uh, with the Jews in the first century. They would have been intimately familiar with these, with these different roles or these different offices. And so we do need to kind of get a little bit of an Old Testament perspective. And I just want to kind of lay the foundation for the next three weeks of these three different offices. And then today we're specifically going to zero in on the office of prophet, Christ as our prophet or a better prophet. So uh, from the Old Testament perspective, uh, there's actually only two individuals uh, in the Old Testament uh, that were prophet, priest, and king, or two individuals. Uh, The first one was actually Adam. Adam uh, was actually set up to be a king in that uh, when God created uh, everything, and then he put Adam in charge, uh, he threw the keys to Adam and said, take care of her, right? And, uh, and so it was Adam's responsibility to actually manage creation on behalf of God. 
And that's what the kings did in Israel, is they managed or they, uh, they kind of ruled Israel on behalf of God. And then also, uh, Adam was meant to be a priest. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with this concept, the garden really was set up to be a temple. It was a place in which the presence of God dwelled. And Adam was given two jobs. It was to work and keep the garden. And these are the same words that are used of priests when they are to work and keep the temple. And it's this idea of uh, keeping it holy, keeping it sanctified, and keeping it pure uh, and, uh, and undefiled. So this was, a, this was a role of a priest, is that Adam was meant to keep the garden holy and separate and pure. And then he didn't. And then also Adam was meant to be a prophet in that he was meant to or intended to communicate the will and the words of God throughout all of creation. And again, uh, at least uh, from Eve's perspective, she seemed to be unaware of what God's words actually were. So you see how poorly this went when a man was a prophet, priest, and a king. And so from that moment on, uh, we see those, uh, those roles are distinct or separated uh, for the rest of the Old Testament. Except for this second character, is a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, but we're not going to have time to, uh, to get into Melchizedek, but I'm sure we will get into it next week when we talk about Christ as our priest. So you have a talking point. I don't know if you're going to bring up Melchizedek, but you're going to have to now. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, Melchizedek, he was the only other individual, but, uh, but that's a special case. We'll talk about that next week. So uh, outside of Melchizedek, uh, after Adam, those roles were always, always separate, specifically uh, the priest and the king. Uh, priests and kings were never supposed to, uh, to kind of blend or mix their roles together, uh, so much so that we even see Moses. He was a Levite, right? So he was in the line to be a priest, right? Uh, the, the priesthood was promised to Levi. And so Moses could have been a priest. However, what ended up happening is that it wasn't Moses that was priest. It was his brother Aaron that was actually promoted to be high priest. And so why wasn't Moses? Because Moses was operating as the king or the guide or the, uh, the one, the judge, uh, to, the one to judge Israel. And so he was operating as a king figure. And so his brother took on the priest role. Uh, even we, we take Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Uh, and he was about to go into battle, and uh, he couldn't find his priest, namely Samuel. And so what does Saul do? He's like, ah, no worries, I'll just offer the sacrifice. And because of that, God said, because you have done this, I'm now removing my spirit from you, I'm removing your kingship, and I'm giving it to someone better than you. So this is, this is a very, it's, it's, it's very important, and again, this, this would have been in the minds of the Jewish people at this time, is that you don't mix priest and king. Now, prophet uh, there was uh, David, he, was, he, was, he prophesied and he was a king, right? So that does mix. Uh, again, Samuel, he was, a pro- he was a prophet and a priest, so that does mix. But specifically, uh, a priest and king, they did not mix. And this is also the reason why uh, in the Gospels, when we see Jesus walking around, the Jews are so confused about Jesus. Because they, they were expecting, uh, it depends on your religious schooling, uh, but they were expecting either three or two messiahs. The Jewish people, they were expecting uh, a, a, a high king, right? A Davidic king that was going to rule over the whole world and that was going to uh, mete out justice on behalf of God. They were expecting a high king, a Davidic king, but they were also expecting a high priest that actually dwelled in heaven and mediated between man and God. 
So they're expecting a high priest Messiah. And then uh, a lot of other Jews, they were also waiting for a suffering servant, someone that would actually suffer on behalf of the people and take away the sins of God's people. So a lot of them, they were looking for three Messiahs. And so then they go to Jesus and they say, tell us, are you the Christ? And he says, it is as you say, and the son of man must suffer many things and die at the hands of the Gentiles. And they're like, that's not what we're, we, what? The Christ doesn't suffer, right? That's the suffering servant, not the Davidic king. And it was just very, very confusing for them. And they just, they had such a hard time resolving this. And so from the Jewish perspective, one guy being prophet, priest, and king that would have been earth-shattering. That's foundational to what we have in Christ. And this is why we're taking three weeks to talk about this, is that Christ is our everything. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. So what, I would, uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about prophets, specifically prophets. Uh, there's, uh, there's three different texts uh, that we're going to go through, uh, and uh, and specifically in Hebrews one and uh, and in Hebrews two, um, I really I really wanted to read both chapters, but I just I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to do it without being over an hour. So uh, instead, we're uh, we're just going to uh, kind of break it apart in three uh, different texts. Um, so I'm going to read these texts. Uh, I'm going to say a quick word on uh, on kind of what prophets were, and then we'll uh, we'll go ahead and pray and get into it. So the first text. Is, uh, is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Uh, the second one is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And then the third one is Hebrews 2, 10 through 14. And no, I didn't mean to be cute by making them ones and fours. It just worked out that way. Um, but <laughs> but this, uh, yeah, these are the texts that we're going to be reading. So uh, the first one, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The next passage is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and, and, every, uh, yeah, and every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And the last text is Hebrews 2, 10 through 14. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, 
I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, like I said, just a quick word on prophets, because we need to understand uh, kind of a common denominator across all the different prophets and who prophets were in the Old Testament. So prophets, uh, really all that they were is they were just individuals that God elected uh, to actually communicate the word and the will of God to mankind. That's really it, right? It's, uh, it's pretty simple. A lot of times we think of prophecy and we're just like, oh, these guys, uh, they knew the future. Okay, yeah, sometimes, right? But really the, the main goal, if you really look at most of the prophets, all they were doing most of the time was just reminding Israel, hey, remember when God told you not to do this? Well, you're doing it. And because you're doing it, judgment's coming. Most of the time, it was just information that they should have known anyways. And that's really what the prophets mostly did is they communicated God's will uh, and God's word to mankind. Another common denominator uh, is that all the prophets, they, they told of what, uh, what the central theme is, uh, is that mankind is sinful and needs God to save them. This idea that man cannot save themselves and therefore God must be the one, he must be the agent in which uh, salvation comes. Man cannot save themselves. They can't do anything to save themselves. They can't get themselves out of their sin condition. And God must save them, and he will provide a way in the future. And another common denominator across the prophets uh, is this idea of suffering. All the prophets suffered. Uh, And uh, you even see this uh, evidenced in uh, Stephen. Uh, If you guys don't know about Stephen, Stephen was a first martyr uh, he was taken before the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the religious leaders, uh, and he had this really sharp critique. Um, and uh, and it, it really hits because he asks this question. He says, oh, by the way, which of the prophets did your dads not kill and abuse? And it's, it's this, this sharp critique because what, what Stephen's doing is he's actually setting up this thing because the answer is, uh, well, they killed and abused all of them, Right? And he's almost setting himself up as saying, I know you guys want to kill me. I know you want to abuse me, but doesn't that just put me on the right side of history? Doesn't that just prove that the only people, the only people that the Jewish leaders, the only people that the Jewish fathers consistently abused and murdered wasn't pagan kings. It wasn't people that were in sin. It, wasn't, it was the prophets that they consistently abused and murdered. And so Stephen was saying, you really want to play this game? You know how this ends, right? And so, and, and you see this idea that prophets, it, it's almost, it comes with a job, right? Suffering and death, abuse and a death. And that, that's, that's this idea of, of prophets, these, uh, these common denominators, is that they communicate the will of God and they communicate this idea of a coming salvation. God must save his people. They can't save themselves. And this idea of prophets, they suffer. And these are kind of our three points that we're going to look at today. And so the three points are, there is a greater joy that flows from the supremacy of our better prophet. The second point is that there is a greater joy that flows from the message or gospel of our better prophet. And the third point is that there is a greater joy that flows from the sufferings of our better prophet. So we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll start digging into the texts. 
Dear God, I just uh, I thank you for today, and I just thank you for this opportunity for all of us to, uh, to get together and, uh, and just look at your word and, uh, and just celebrate your advent and just the joy that comes from what you've accomplished um, and what you've given to us. I ask that you just, you use that, uh, um, you use today and you use this text to, to really uh, hit our hearts in new ways. And I ask that you just, you open uh, our hearts to, uh, to the word that you have for us. And, uh, and just use it to, uh, to vivify our, our, our broken lives. And, uh, and that through your text, through your word, through your Christ, you give us new life and that we feel that more and more abundantly as we get to know you and we grow closer to you. And we thank you again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So um, when I was a kid, just a wee lad. Um, I remember uh, there was a time I was playing in my room all by myself, just minding my own business, right? Being the good little boy that I was. And my brother just comes, just darting into my room, screaming. And, uh, and he, he just tells me with all this excitement, Lucas, uh, mom just told me that we can color on the walls. And I was like, this is great news. This is fantastic. And so immediately we get the crayons and the markers out and I start drawing on the walls because of course, what little kid doesn't want to do this? Not noticing that my brother has now hidden in the closet and he's also drawing on the walls, but like behind the clothes so that you can't tell. And so I'm just living my best life, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then what happens uh, immediately after is my, uh, my mom finds out and, uh, and so she... Um, <laughs> I don't know, like subdued rage is, I guess, a, a good way of putting this. Uh, she, she very calmly, uh, basically, um, well, she, she put an end to it. Let's just put it. Um, now, to be fair, to be fair, um, I, uh, she, she didn't punish me. I can't remember what happened to my brother. Uh, I just blacked out, so I don't remember. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just. <laughs> but she recognized uh, the, uh, um, I guess, uh, her naive younger son. Uh, was uh, was obviously taken advantage of, but uh, but the the point is uh, when when we receive good news we have to check the source right okay and uh, I didn't know that uh, I uh, I just blindly trusted whatever good news uh, I really wanted to hear and uh, and this idea of Christ as a better prophet. Uh, is that we don't need to uh, we we can trust in this better prophet we can trust in the source. He's given us good news, and so as our better prophet, uh, we can trust the source, uh, namely because uh, we know the source. So that's where we get into Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And I'll just read this first uh, part again. And it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the world. Now, what's, uh, what's remarkable about this, and, and this is kind of, the, again, the Old Testament perspective, uh, is, that, uh, is that mankind was given a lot of different prophets, and many of their messages were, were in part. Again, we, in Adam, we get this promise, we get this prophecy that God uh, will send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. Awesome. That's a portion. You guys see how that's just a portion. It's not the full story. Right? 
And then again, in Moses, we get the law and we get this idea that man can't save themselves. And if man tries to live according to the law, they will always fall short, right? And then Moses gives this prophecy or this promise that there will come a better prophet, a prophet greater than Moses. So again, there's this, there's this coming. It's just a piece though, right? It's just a portion. Uh, and then even uh, Jeremiah, he talks about this new covenant that's coming, right? Uh, Israel, they again and again and again, they fail and God's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. He gives this analogy of, it's like ash in the wind is going to be like Israel. But he says, but I promise I'll bring you back. I'm going to do something great in you. And he promises in this, in this moment, when I bring you back, I'm going to give you this new covenant. I'm going to take this heart of stone out of your flesh. This is Ezekiel. I'm going to give this heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new and living covenant. So we get, these, we get these prophecies and we always get them in part. We get portions of them and over time. And that's amazing that God is even willing to communicate that. But what the writer of Hebrews is getting at is uh, long ago, or uh, he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. One prophet, one message, one time. No longer do we need to wait for the next portion. No longer do we need to wait for the next prophet. And so if Christ is our better prophet, how do we know this? How do we trust this? And so God, in order to communicate this, he just sends his son. And not just a son, but the one that was actually the agent of creation. It says, the one who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. And again, we get this idea that when God said, let there be light, it was Jesus that actually manufactures the light. When God created uh, the heavens and the earth, it was actually Jesus that actually manufactured and created them. So isn't it appropriate that God would send the one that actually created the world to actually step into that world to communicate God's message? And so no longer do we need to wait for portions. No longer do we need to wait for more prophets. No longer do we need to wait for different ways and different times because we have one prophet And the writer of Hebrews, he even goes on to the next portion in verse 3. He says, uh, and he is the radiance of his glory. Christ is the radiance of God the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And this, again, this idea that when Christ was incarnate, when he took on flesh, as he walked among men, what people didn't recognize as they spoke to God incarnate, as they spoke to the exact representation of the nature of God, they didn't realize that he was literally holding them together. And as they spat on him and as they beat him, they didn't recognize the fact that he was holding them together as they crucified him on a cross. And it was this prophet, it's this greater prophet that actually then communicates God's word. And again, what they didn't recognize is that his person was God's word. Christ is the word of God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say um, that, uh, that he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become so much better than the angels. 
to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, this might seem like an interesting transition, right? He's talking about prophets. He's talking about the son being the perfect prophet. He's talking about, we don't need to wait for other messengers. We don't need to wait for uh, people that we might not trust. We don't need to wait for the next section of the prophecy. We have everything in Christ. And then he talks about, and Christ is better than angels. And, uh, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of people have actually read this as, uh, as saying that Christ uh, was, before, uh, his, uh, before his ascension, he was actually lower than the angels. And this isn't, this isn't the case. This isn't what the author of Hebrews is talking about. What we need to recognize is what angels are, is angels are angelos in Greek, it just means messenger. And so these messengers, they also communicate what? The words of God. You see, these angels are actually parts of these, they're, they're actually uh, operating in the same way, in the same vein as the prophets. And so when it talks about how Christ uh, was, he inherited a more excellent name than they, what it's communicating is that we don't even need to wait for angels. We have Christ. Even Christ communicates better than the angels. So even when we were waiting for new prophecies, even when we were waiting for new prophets, even if God sent us an angel, that was still not good enough. We're still waiting for something more. And what Christ accomplished for us is that he gave us himself. He gave us the exact representation of God's nature. And we don't even need to wait for angels. And in fact, God or Christ presents God better than the angels ever could have. And this joy that flows out of this idea of Christ is supreme. He's the supreme, better prophet. We don't need to wait for something more. We already have it. And there's this joy that comes out of this idea that everything that we know, everything that we have is in Christ and everything in Christ represents the nature of God and the radiance of his glory. And the next point that we're going to talk about is uh, there is a greater joy that flows from the message or the gospel of our better prophet. And this gets into Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And it says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testified with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Here we actually get this idea that, the, uh, again, what was alluded to in, uh, in, in chapter 1, is that in Christ we have one prophet, one message at one time. We don't need various prophets, we don't need various ways, we don't need various times. We have Christ. And this message that's actually given to Christ, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is, man, if, if the message that was given by the angels if that was unalterable, if that was punishable, uh, if, uh, if you violated it, if that had the authority of God, what does Christ's message carry? What authority does that have for our lives? And what he's talking about is, if, if that doesn't impress you, what else is there? If God himself takes on flesh, smacks you in the face and tells you this is the gospel and you say, meh, Right? This, this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is, is how do you escape 
How do, you, how do we escape judgment if we neglect a salvation like that? Where we couldn't even escape the judgment from angels. And now Christ, God himself, the perfect representation of God's nature, is actually walking among us, giving us the gospel, giving us the fulfillment of all these prophecies that we were given in portion and at different times. He fulfills all those prophecies. It's almost as if God is walking among us and he's telling us, hey, remember when God said there was going to be a seed that crushes the head of the serpent. That's me. Hey, remember when God said he was going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and a new covenant. That's me. I'm the new covenant. I'm here. Remember when God told uh, Moses that there's going to be a better prophet because the Israelites won't be able to follow the law. I'm the better prophet. And as he walked through life, as he communicated this better message, as he communicated the true and raw and unadulterated gospel of God, as he gave it to us, what, uh, what, what else do we need? What else uh, should we expect? And if that wasn't enough, God dwelling among us and giving us that gospel, the writer of Hebrews says um, that uh, uh, it was first spoken through the Lord, which is incredible, and it was confirmed by eyewitnesses, those who heard, right? It was confirmed by people who actually heard. And if that wasn't good enough, God himself also testified with them, the eyewitnesses, by giving them signs and wonders and various miracles and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God dwelled among us as a better prophet, right? And then he gave us eyewitnesses to confirm what the prophet said. And then he confirmed those eyewitnesses again, even further by giving them the Holy Spirit and giving us the Holy Spirit. What else could we ask for? How do we, how do we escape a judgment from a salvation like this? If this doesn't give us hope, if this doesn't give us joy, what else, what greater salvation is there? And that's, that's what the writer of, of Hebrews is getting at here, is that uh, it's actually in our better prophet, we have the true gospel and the joy that comes out of that, the joy that comes from Christ uh, living our lives, uh, the lives that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. This is the true gospel. This is the unadulterated gospel. And again, we don't need to look for something else. And the last point, and again, prophets, they always suffered. This is the last point, is that there is a greater joy that flows from the sufferings of our better prophet. So this is at the end of, uh, of Hebrews 2. And I'll just read this, uh, this first section and we'll start picking it apart. And then we'll move on to the last section. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. All right, let's just stop there. That seems super confusing to other people, just the way that that sentence is kind of laid out. Um, yeah, so... Uh, we, can, we can actually uh, kind of break this apart. Uh, there's uh, something called uh, parenthetical statements. Uh, now, stick with me. Okay, we're, I know as soon as I said parenthetical statements, a lot of, I just lost some of you. So just stick with me, okay? Uh, what, what parenthetical statements are, and it's, just, it's actually pretty convenient, it just modifies a sentence in the middle of the sentence, right? So uh, it's a great way to add, uh, add details without breaking the sentence into a different one. Uh, now, the convenient thing about parenthetical statements is you can actually just lift it out of the sentence and the sentence still makes sense, okay? 
So if we try that, if we just lift out the parenthetical statements here, this reads, for it was fitting for him to perfect the originator of their salvation through suffering. Now, the parenthetical statement explains who these people are. The him, it was fitting for him, that's God the Father, to perfect the originator of their salvation, that's Christ, through sufferings. So now this gets really easy. We can understand this. For it was fitting for God, the Father, to perfect Christ through suffering. Um, So it makes more sense. However, what do we do with this? Why is God perfecting Christ? Didn't the writer of Hebrews just say that Christ is the exact representation of God? And if God's perfect, why does Jesus need to be perfected? Indicating that he wasn't perfect before. So, what's going on here? Now, the Greek kind of helps us out. Uh, The word perfect here uh, is actually the Greek word teleos. Uh, And teleos gets translated a lot of different ways. And perfected actually uh, really makes sense if you're just trying to do one word to translate it. Perfect or perfect uh, would be uh, pretty ideal. But the idea behind this is teleos is actually what happens when you accomplish a goal, right? When you perfect the goal, when you perfect the thing that you've actually been striving after. This same word, teleos, is also used uh, in, in, in uh, first century literature of people when they finish a race, right? So imagine you're running a race, there's a goal, there's a finish line, and when you cross the finish line, you've teleos, you've finished the race, it's complete, it's done. And that's, that's this word. And so this actually adds a little bit more context because it was fitting for God to use Christ to accomplish his goals through sufferings. Now, What's interesting about this is, uh, is that God chose sufferings. Like he cho- it says it was fitting, right? He, he wanted this to happen. That it was fitting, that it was through sufferings that God was going to accomplish his goals in Christ. It really begs this question, why sufferings? Why, why would he choose sufferings? Why not, I don't know, cupcakes? Anything, <laughs> anything but suffering, Right? And, uh, and, and he goes on to explain this, why it's through sufferings. And again, what we need to recognize is that prophets, they always suffered. And so Christ, our better prophet, also suffers with us. What's interesting about all these prophets, when they suffer, is you need to recognize that all of these prophets, every single prophet, they always align themselves with the people of Israel, Right? So like Moses, uh, he gets down from, uh, from the mountain and, uh, and everyone's worshiping this golden calf that just jumped out of the fire. Don't know where that came from, right? So uh, God burns his anger against him and then Moses goes back and he pleads on behalf of Israel, right? He operates as if he is uh, Israel. And he says, please, Father, like forgive them, right? Give them another chance. Remember your promise that you made to the fathers, right? And he begs on behalf of Israel. Moses aligns himself with the people that are not opposed to God, which seems dangerous, right? But this is what the prophets do. Uh, even, uh, even Isaiah, when he's in the throne room of God, he says, woe, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people that are unclean. Again, he's aligning himself with unclean people. Again, this is dangerous, but this is what prophets do. Uh, even Ezra Right? We went through Ezra and uh, when Ezra gets to the second temple and he sees everyone, they just, they just got their temple back and the Israelites are already screwing up again. 
right? And Ezra gets there and he just, he mourns and he weeps and he begs God, please forgive me. Ezra didn't do anything. But what he's doing is he's actually aligning himself with the people of Israel. So what's interesting about Christ suffering as our prophet is he's now aligning himself with us. Do we see that? And the writer of Hebrews even goes on to say this. He says, uh, to perfect the originator of their salvation, again, Christ, through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, one source. And so this one who sanctifies, this is Christ, and the ones who are sanctified, that's us, and we are all in one Father. He says, for this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now this, this starts making a lot more sense. This, this gets far heavier than just Christ being a prophet and coming and just bearing a message. Yes, a son of God, which is remarkable. God incarnate walking among us. That's amazing. A supreme, uh, better prophet. The supremacy of this better prophet over all the angels and all the other prophets. The supremacy of his message, the whole entire message, one message at one time. But now he's actually suffering with us. Why? So that when we suffer, we now participate in the sanctification which is in Christ. And if we participate in sanctification in Christ, he calls us brothers and sisters. So what's more is this prophet, this better prophet suffers. Why? So that we can be called brothers and sisters of Christ. It's through this sonship that now we get so much, uh, we get so much more. Again, our big brother, Christ, it said in 1 Hebrews 1, it says, the son whom he appointed heir over all things. That's our brother. Heir of everything. And now because we now have the opportunity to actually participate in his sufferings, when we participate in his sufferings, he calls us brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, to back up um, in, uh, in earlier in the uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 10, it says to perfect the originator of their salvation. This originator could also be translated as pioneer. Again, someone that's inventing something new, carving a new way, uh, plotting out a new course. And why, why, how, why would Christ be a pioneer? Is because he's, he's doing something new so that others can follow. Later on in the book of Hebrews, it also uh, compares uh, Jesus to better than Moses. And what was Moses? He was a pioneer, right? He plotted out a new way. He showed people a new land and the people followed him. Christ is our pioneer, and what he's pioneering is he's pioneering a new way to suffer. The reason why God chose suffering is you were going to suffer anyways, right? We all suffer anyways because of sin. But now, if we can suffer for Christ, that gets something done. That accomplishes something. That gives us new life. That gives us sonship. So this, this is what's accomplished in, uh, in our spiritual big brother, Christ, is that he carves this new way, he paves this new path 
so that when we suffer like him, and by the way, the sufferings that are depicted in the book of Hebrews was uh, mistreatment and abuse, just like the prophets. The next one was temptations. Christ suffered temptations, namely in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then also Christ suffered death. Again, we were going to experience those anyways. We were going to be mistreated. We were going to be tempted. We were going to participate in death. But now Christ has pioneered something brand new so that when we experience those sufferings, we can now participate in sanctification. And if participating in sanctification, we participate in sonship with Christ. And uh, in verse 12, it says, saying, so this is Christ saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. Now this verse, what's quoted here is actually Psalm 22. And if you know anything about Psalm 22, uh, back in the, in the first century, they didn't have chapters and verses, right? They couldn't say, open your scroll to Psalm 22, right? So they didn't have chapters and verses. They couldn't do that. And so how did they do this? They would say, open, uh, open up to, or we're going to talk about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They'd quote the first line of the passage that we're now going to talk about. So if that doesn't sound familiar... This is exactly what Christ said while hanging on the cross. As as he's on the cross, he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's essentially as if he's on the cross and he's shouting out, Psalm 22. He's he's making everyone recognize, guys, this, I am the suffering servant. Do you not see this? If you don't know anything about Psalm 22, it talks about how my side will be pierced. It talks about my hands and my feet will be pierced. It talks about how mockers uh, will, will say to him, if God loves you, why, not, why doesn't he just save you? Which is exactly what they were saying to Christ while he hung on the cross. It talks about how by, uh, people will walk by and wag their heads and say this man is cursed by God. It's exactly what happened in, the, in Matthew. It talks about that. Passerbys wagged their heads or shook their heads in shame. Uh, it, uh, it talks about how dogs will encircle me, Gentiles. Dogs are idiomatic, or je- dogs are, yeah, idiomatic of Gentiles. So dogs uh, surround me. It talks about um, how evildoers have encircled me, one in his left, one in his right. It's, Psalm 22 perfectly captures everything in the cross, and everyone in that situation was just so blind to what was happening. To the point where Christ even says, Psalm 22, and everyone's just like, is he calling for Elijah? Right? They just, they didn't get it. And what's, what's remarkable about this, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, is he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing your praise. That's at the very end of Psalm 22. And so when you ask the question, when did Christ say this? When did he... Uh, uh, when was he not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters? It was on the cross. It was on the cross when he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It was on the cross as we were crucifying him, he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And, and the suffering of Christ is that as we're actually putting him to death, as he's suffering at our hands, as he's suffering at the hands of the Jewish people, he calls out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He calls out and calls them brothers and sisters. He offers them salvation as they're, uh, as they're crucifying him and as they're putting him to death. 
You see how our spiritual big brother is it's paving a new way, a new way for us to view the world, a new way to view those that actually persecute us, a new way to view temptation. This is a way for us to participate in Christ in resisting the devil, in resisting temptation. It's a new way for us to suffer and look at people that oppress us and abuse us and misuse us. Because now we get to look at them as brothers, potential brothers and sisters. We have a new way of looking at death. Death is not the end. We get new life. We get a resurrection. And the next section or in the next half of this verse, it says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Uh, this is in 1 Samuel. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is Isaiah 8. Again, both of those situations refer to a suffering servant calling uh, the people that oppress him, uh, children of God. And it says, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, the same sufferings, the same temptation, the same mistreatment, and the same death. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What's remarkable here, and this is something that I teach my students all the time, is Christ had to be human. He had to be fully man. In order for his sin, in order, in order for his um, uh, sacrifice to pay for humans' sins. The blood of bulls doesn't, it's not permanent. It's not adequate. But the blood of Christ, that's adequate, it's permanent. But a best case scenario is, this, is, the, is the blood of one innocent man might pay for the sins of one uh, uh, sinner. Worst case scenario is uh, the wages of sin is death. So the worst case scenario is that Christ's sacrifice paid for one of our sins, which gets nothing done. So Christ had to be fully man, but he also had to be fully God in order for that sacrifice to be God-sized. In order for that sacrifice to actually pay for all sins, past, present, and future. And not just the sins that you committed, but all the sins that you're going to commit. And what's being accomplished in Christ is that God cannot die. And so when Christ participates in death, what happens to death? Death can't hold on. Death can't contain God. So it's almost like, it's almost like the, the basket that was containing, trying to contain God was just burst open. It just broke open and now there's nothing left in the bottom. There's no floor to this thing. It's that death uh, through Christ has now given us the ability to live in death. We now live through Christ's death. And it's because he has defeated death, now we have the ability to participate in new life. And so it is the sufferings of our better prophet where he pioneers, he paves a new way. So that in participating in death, he destroys the power of death and the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. And he frees those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's us. We were subject to slavery all of our lives and that's all that we've ever known and that's all we ever will know without Christ. But it is through this better prophet, it is through the sufferings of this better prophet that now we get to experience death just like everyone else. However, it gets something done. It accomplishes something. It gives us new life. It gives us a resurrection. 
And the joy that comes out of this is the idea that, that we now don't have to fear death. We no longer are slaves to death, but instead now, right? We don't have to wait for this. Now we are free. Now we are free from this fear of death because we have a better prophet. We have a better big brother. We are going to be taking um, these, uh, these ornaments in the back. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but we'll be taking these, pro- uh, these, um, um, these ornaments and actually writing down the names of, uh, of people in our lives that don't know Christ. And what we're going to be doing over these three weeks is we're going to write their names down, we're going to hang them on that tree, and we're going to pray for them over and over and over and over. And we're going to pray for the salvation of, of lost souls that God has put into uh, our lives and we're going to pray for those, pray for those individuals. And the reason why we pray for them, the reason why we're so desperate to get to them is because we have a greater joy. There is a greater joy that comes out of this better prophet that we have in Christ. And when we have this greater joy, we have something to share and we can't contain it, or at least we shouldn't. And this is actually alluded to here in, uh, in uh, this, this last section where it says, Christ was not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And you see this quiet rebuke where it's like, if Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, we should not be ashamed to call him our Christ. And there, there is this, there's this desire, there's this hope that we too can find lost brothers and sisters, right? Future brothers and sisters, unrealized brothers and sisters. Because we were there too. We were without hope. We were without joy. But now in Christ, we have joy. How do we not share it? What we're going to be doing over these three weeks is we're going to be writing down the people that God has placed in our lives and we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray earnestly, just like we talked about last week, in light of Christ's second coming, in light of Christ, the Lord being near, the judge being at the door, we pray earnestly. So because of Christ's first advent, we have joy. But because of his second advent, we pray earnestly for these lost souls. So as we go throughout this week, I want us thinking about these people that God has placed in our lives. But I also want us to just, uh, to just thank God. Just marvel at this greater joy that he has given to us. This greater joy that's given to us through the supremacy of this better prophet. Better than angels, better than uh, other prophets. Just marvel at the greater joy that flows out of the gospel or the message of this better prophet. One prophet, one message, one time. And just marvel at the greater joy that flows from the sufferings of our better prophet, our big brother, Jesus Christ. Let's just marvel at what he has given to us and let's share this joy as we go throughout this season. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.